I want to just read some verses from the chapter that we're going to look at this morning. And if you have a Bible with you, you can pick it up and follow. Otherwise, you can just bow your heart and listen as we read God's Word together. Luke chapter 24, and I'm going to read the first 12 verses. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the woman took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the woman bowed down with their faces to the ground, but the men said to them, Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee. The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. Then they remembered his words. When they came back from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the others. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the others with them who told this to the apostles. But they did not believe the woman because their words seemed like like nonsense. Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. Bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves, and he went away wondering to himself what had happened. Father, as we come to your word, We don't stop worshipping, we continue our worship. And we pray that as we read and listen to your written word, we will encounter Jesus Christ, the living word, who is why we are here. Thank you for the presence of your Holy Spirit, who can open our hearts and minds to understand the truth of your word. Father, I pray that your word will renew our mind so that our lives will be transformed and we will never be the same. And the watching world will look at us and wonder too what it is about us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Keep your Bible open at Luke 24. I always find it a humbling and frightening privilege to share God's word. I've been doing it for 45 years and I still find it hard to eat breakfast whenever I'm speaking. My stomach's in a knot. Because there's a responsibility that goes with it. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Maz. Uh, It's short for Mazza. Maz is easier to remember. Uh, my wife, Philippa, is Pip, and uh, she sends her greetings. We're part. This is our church home and family here. And to save answering all the questions afterwards, as I had to last Sunday when Pip wasn't with me, Pip is absent because just over two months ago she had a heart attack. So 
or caught a virus that attacked her heart and simulated all the issues, damaged muscles and uh, myocarditis around the heart inflammation. So as you could imagine, she is on a journey of recovery. And the prognosis is good because she doesn't fit the risk category. All her arteries and valves and all that stuff is good. So uh, as the cardiologist said, she's in the 5% of the weird and wonderful, which is very reassuring. So um, she sends her greetings and, and God willing she'll be back fellowshipping soon as she renews her strength. So uh, keep her in your prayers. We appreciate that very, very much. In 1976, the principal of the high school I went to uh, called me into his office for the second time in 18 months and said, Maz, I think it'd be best if you left because it's really not working for either of us. So he said, either pull your socks up or leave. So I did the typical teenage thing and went, tew, tew, see you later. Literally walked out of his office and out of the school. I was a lost, confused young teenager who was trying to find something. Then a little later that year, I was sitting in a place where a lot of us young guys congregated uh, with people we called the brothers. They were Franciscan monks who were our saving grace, kept us off the street, tried to keep us on the straight and narrow, didn't always work. I was sitting listening to Bruce Springsteen's latest album, Born to Run. Uh, he still is the best artist, no arguments about that. I just finished reading Jack Kerouac's On the Road. I was into the beat poets and I was looking for something. And there was a knock at the door and my parents were at the door, which was a violation. No parents were allowed at this place and they knocked on the door and they dragged me out and they said, we have to tell you Paul's drowned in the Manukau Harbour. Paul was the same age as me. We were basically like brothers. We'd grown up literally from birth. Our mothers were best friends. I was just in shock. And then I remember carrying Paul's casket out of the Catholic Church in Pamir, GI or Glennis, the uninitiated, where I'd grown up. Having heard the priest, with no disrespect, go through his liturgy and stuff, and it made absolutely no sense to me, a 16-year-old um, substance abuser. Um, but all I remember was walking out thinking, where is he? Death cannot be the end. Surely he has not ceased to exist. Where is he? And I began to realize then, as we find as we journey through this passage, that death is not natural. It is unnatural, and it reveals that there's something very broken and out of order in our universe. Death was never meant to be part of life. Then 30 years as a pastor, walking with people from losing children to parents and every age and thing in between and holding people's hands literally while they died, my perspective had changed. Death is not natural. It is the result of sin, fallenness and brokenness, but it's not the end. It's a doorway into eternity. 
either an eternity with God, with Christ, or without him. And Jesus defined that as hell. There is no gray. There is no gray. Jesus, one of the things I began to love as I picked up the Bible as a Christian to read this scriptures was I loved the raw authenticity and honesty of the scriptures about people's fallen, broken lives and the fact that Jesus never made anything gray. He told us the truth. And sometimes I realize as we read the story of the cross and the resurrection, as we've just read some now, that we can beat up on these people sometimes and think, why didn't they get it? Because what's happened is Good Friday's been, they've celebrated the Passover, and They've gone, as we've read, the woman to take spices to anoint the body of Jesus. They know exactly where the body is. They'd followed Joseph of Arimathea to his tomb where he had asked Pilate for the body and he'd buried Jesus because he believed in Jesus. He did not assent to the crucifixion of Christ as a priest. And so the woman had followed him to the tomb. They knew exactly where the tomb was. They arrive there on the Sunday Easter morning and they find, as we've read, that the stone has been rolled away. And one of the other gospel accounts, as these women are walking there, it says the question between them was, who's going to move the stone? Because it was physically impossible for them. They reach the tomb. The stone is rolled away. The first mysterious thing has happened. And they're wondering what's going on. Then they enter the tomb. A tomb in those days had a low door. You had to bow to get in, and then you could stand up in this massive antechamber where there were uh, stone beds, as it were, off to the sides for the bodies to be laid in. And they looked in there, and there's no body of Christ. It was an unused tomb that belonged to Joseph of Arimathea. He'd purchased it for his death. Then no other body was in there other than the body of Christ. And what they see is the clothes. And one of the Gospels tells us that the linen strips that were wrapped around Jesus' body in the headcloth were neatly folded and put to one side. Teenagers, make your bed. (laughs) Jesus did. It might be a humorous thing to say, but what it says is that this body was not stolen. The person who had risen from the dead had done it in a miraculous, very unhurried manner. And they walk in and they see this empty tomb. And while they're wondering, perplexed about death, two angels come beside them and tell them, why are you looking for the living amongst the dead? He is not here He has risen. You think, why didn't they get it? Because as we'll see, all through his earthly life and ministry from the very beginning, Jesus had been clear that he had been born to die. Jesus had been clear that in being the promised Messiah, the hope of Israel, the hope of the world, his life was one to come to suffer, 
to be handed over to sinful authorities, to be tortured in a way that is beyond inhumane. So that when he stood before Pilate, Pilate, we, we can gloss over the word, said, behold the man. What the implication of that was, was that the torture that Christ had undergone had so disfigured him, as Isaiah 52 says, that he was actually unrecognizable as a man. Skin torn from his face, from his back, from all around him, we, we, time does not permit. It's more a Good Friday message. But in such a way that Isaiah prophesied that he would be unrecognizable in human form. So tortured was he before he even reached the cross. Jesus said, this is what's going to happen to me, but don't worry, it's not the end, because on the third day, I will rise from the dead. What we have to understand about their perplexity, their bewilderment about this whole moment is that they did not understand there was no frame of reference for resurrection. Yes, you might say, well, didn't Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead? The widow's son? Weren't there other people raised from the dead? Yes, they're not resurrections, they're resuscitations. When someone is resuscitated from the dead, they're raised from the dead in the same body to live to die again. It happened to my father. He died on our driveway. Massive heart attack. They resuscitated him. He told them everything they said and did as his, body, his spirit was sucked back into his body. I sat beside him in hospital and talked about it with him, trying to think this was my one opportunity as a Christian for my Middle Eastern father who was a Muslim to preach the gospel to him. But we got into another argument about it and I thought I'm going to give him another heart attack. Let's just leave this at the moment. But I got to share with him the day before he died, five years ago. To be resuscitated is to come back to life in the same body to die. Resurrection is to come back to life in a risen body never to die. That is the hope of the gospel. Jesus had said that, but they had no frame of reference. This is why in Mark 9, in the account of the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus talked again about, don't tell anyone about this moment you've had with me until I suffer, I'm crucified, and I rise from the dead. It tells us the disciples were walking down the mountain going, what's this rising from the dead he keeps talking about? Slightly paraphrased. They did not understand. So this Easter morning, they had no hope of Jesus being alive. We have to understand that. The woman run back, they tell the uh, remaining 11 apostles, Judas has died, and these guys don't believe them. They consider it nonsense. It makes no sense to them. And Peter walks away perplexed, bewildered, puzzled, wondering what on earth is going on. Then we see two other men walking. Pick up your Bible if you've got it with you. Verse 13 of chapter 24. Now that same day, resurrection morning, two of them, 
meaning disciples, were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles around 11 kilometers from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. He said to them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still. The idea is they almost fell over in their tracks, still their faces downcast. One of them named Cleopas asked them, are you the only one living in Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that have happened there in these days? In other words, they're perplexed, bewildered. Dude, you've just come from Jerusalem too, have you, and you don't know? What we have to understand is the death and crucifixion of Christ was the biggest story in the news in Jerusalem at that moment. And with Passover there, the population of Jerusalem was massive. People from all around had come to celebrate. So they were all walking away like these two, perplexed, bewildered, wondering, what on earth is this about? Who is this man, Jesus? What things, Jesus asked. Jesus was the master at setting up with questions. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed, before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped. Hope's a powerful word, isn't it? But we had hoped. And here we have something of the heart of the story. We had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. They had a concept from listening to the teaching of Jesus that something significant was meant to happen on the third day. But they still couldn't wrap their finite human minds around what that might be. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but they didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it, just as the woman said, but they did not see him. When I left my brothers, in a sense, from a different mother's funeral, wondering where Paul was, what life was all about. The substance abuse increased. My home environment was not a a happy one. So uh, having listened to Baby We Were Born to Run, read Jack about being on the road, I hit the road. I went on a journey, on a walk, from Auckland ending up in Arrow Valley in Wellington, sleeping on the streets at times because I didn't know anyone in a town and life went from bad to worse. Then I came back to Auckland, and I met the love of my life. We celebrate 42 years married on Tuesday. Sweet 16 she was when I met her. We couldn't have come from more opposite backgrounds. She'd been raised in a lovely middle-class Christian home. When her father met me, he told her our relationship did not have his blessing. I have three daughters and one son, and I've always said to my wife, I'd never let you go out with someone like me. What was your father thinking? (laughs) 
Told my girl's boyfriends I had secret places in forests where no one would ever find the body. <laughs> Actually said that to one man, he couldn't finish his lunch. My wife and I would play good cop, bad cop. My girlfriend said, my daughter said, Dad, my boyfriend's scared of you. I said, good. I said, till the day he walks you down the aisle, he's not my friend. <laughs> I'm your friend. I'm your protector. So, we all walk a journey with a lot of questions, with a lot of hopes and expectations, just like Cleopas and his friend. My journey through all those teenage years was one of myriads of questions. I looked into Eastern religion, I looked into the occult, into drugs, I considered my father's Islamic religion. And none of it could answer the questions for me. Until I heard 45 years ago tonight at an Easter camp, I'm praying, I pray for Easter camps every year, Kerry Park, out the back of Henderson, I heard the message of Christ for the first time. And two days later, yielded my life to Christ. I connected the dots of all my questions and perplexities, expectations and hopes, which is the essence of this story, and I want to watch and honour time. I think I've still got two hours uh, <laughs> till lunch. You see, these two on the Emmaus Road said we had hoped. There was a hope and expectation amongst the Jewish people that one day a Messiah would come who would make everything better. He would set the people of Israel free. Much like Moses, their deliverer, had. And Moses had even prophesied that God would raise up a prophet like him to redeem Israel. So all throughout their history, there were these prophetic promises, particularly in Isaiah and Zechariah, of how God would change the world through the Messiah. But their hope, their expectation of the one who would redeem Israel was a temporal, materialistic, physical expectation. Because right at this moment, they were back again under oppression, under Roman rule and occupation in their own land. And there was this hope that someone will set us free. But they looked for external redemption. That someone would change their circumstances. When I ran away from home as a 16-year-old teenager, and the police eventually located me and said, look, you're 16, you're legal to do this, you're not in trouble, but please let your parents know you're alive. Um, my whole thing was, if I just get out of this environment and go to a new place, I wouldn't have used this word then, I could redeem myself. I could make everything better. The problem was I took me <laughs> with me every step of the way. Sometimes people think what I need is a new start in life to have a new life. It's the opposite way with the gospel. I need a new life, a new heart to start a new life. 
Might be a play on words, but it's true. I never knew that as a teenager. Some of you might be sitting here and you don't realise that. You can change all the external circumstances you want, but if your heart is not transformed, you are still the same broken, sinful person. Jesus addresses them. We might think it's pretty rude, but in Middle Eastern culture, people speak straight. My dad and I always spoke very directly to each other. I grew up amongst his people, and a spade was a spade, not a digging implement. You didn't dance on eggshells. I would watch my father and his friends debate, fight, slap each other, then kiss each other on the cheek and say, see you next time. I had to compromise my communication style when I got married. <laughs> Verse 25, he said to them, how foolish you are, how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Wouldn't you have loved to have been there? That's one message I wish they'd recorded. Jesus started from Genesis and winged all the way through to the end of the Tanakh, the Old Testament, explaining key prophetic passages about himself. What he was saying to them is, I am the Messiah. I am the one who was promised. You've read all this, but you are foolish. In other words, you're not that bright. You didn't get it. And you're slow of learning. And the idea of slow, the, the Greek word conveys the idea of being dull. How many of you have ever polished brass? I like brass. And when we bought our little cottage by the beach out in Badley's Bay up here, the lock on the outside door was very tarnished and just green and all sorts. And as I polished it up and polished it and got layer and layer of mould and dirt off it, it became this beautiful piece of brass that just shone. I could almost sort of brush my teeth in it. But I had to polish it and polish it to see through all the layers. Francis and Edith Schaefer um, have written a number of wonderful books. Uh, they passed away, but they, they had this quaint saying called polishing the prophecies. And what Francis Schaefer was getting at was the fact that we who believe can become so over-familiar with what we read and believe and it becomes so layered with the dirt of life and living that we no longer see clearly. We don't get it. And Schaefer said, sometimes what we've got to do is we've got to polish the prophecies. And sometimes they don't become clear until they occur. People have asked me over the years as a pastor, what's your eschatology? What's your end times teaching? I said, I'm panmillennialist. They said, what's that? I said, it's all going to pan out in the end. <laughs> and I said, while we're going up or whichever way, 
we're taken, I said, we're all going to go, ah, so that's what it meant. What I do know is that there is an end coming. We have to polish the prophecies. We have to keep reading God's word and asking him to open our hearts and minds because we get so busy that one of the dangers we have is that we can lament how hard people's hearts can be to the gospel outside the church. The danger, though, is we become so familiar, we become gospel-hardened saints. We lose our tenderness to the cross, to Christ, because it's all become too familiar, lay it over with life. Keep polishing the prophecies. Keep that word sharp and bright in your life. Because this is what Jesus was saying to them. You've grown dull. You can't see it anymore. You didn't see it. And then he explained. And then they beg him to stay, have a meal with them. He does. He breaks bread. And at that moment, they recognize him. And he vanishes from their sight. What a cool trick. The first insight that his body is not the same. And the Greek language of the New Testament is very clear. This isn't, he just slipped out the back door. He literally disappeared from right in front of them. And then they said this amazing thing. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while, we talk, while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? There is something absolutely supernatural about this book. That when you read it and you polish the prophecies and you sit under it, it burns in your heart. And when a fire burns in your heart, Jeremiah in Jeremiah 20 said, God's word is like a, in my heart like a fire burning. And what I find is when I allow the word of God to dwell in my heart and burn, it not only burns sin away, it refines. Because fire does two things. It can consume and it can refine. When I came to Christ finally in March 1978, 45 years ago, Pip gave me her children's living Bible. I'd never picked up a Bible. I'd never been to church. It was in three pieces, well used. She put them all in the correct order for me. She said, start reading in the Gospels. My first question was, what's a Gospel? I don't know. She said, well, there's an in contents page in the front. <laughs> She said, start in Matthew. I went home. It was after midnight. I got my torch. I got under the blankets. And I lit up the Bible. And I read in Matthew to Mark, to Luke, to John, to Acts, to the end of Romans. I read with the torch under the blankets because I knew if my father found me with a Bible in the house, I knew what he would do. It would be in more than three parts. I'd seen him in action. It just burns, doesn't it? Because as we'll see as I draw us to a close, these two men have been so captivated with the truth that they've realized they've known all along and it's now suddenly become clear to them. 
that they're now 11 kilometres away from Jerusalem, but right then and there they get up, turn around and run all the way back to find the other disciples who they knew, who they'd been with as part of Jesus' earthly ministry. And as they're bursting into the room, as it were, they say, we've got something to tell you. And they say, Jesus has appeared to Peter. So when Jesus vanished, he must have gone and said, hi, Peter. And they say, we know he's risen. Let us tell you what happened to us on the road home to Emmaus. Let us tell you about the meal we sat down with with Jesus. Let us tell you what he said, how he opened the scriptures. And they're having this conversation and debate. And in the midst of all that, while they were still talking about this, Jesus stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. Jesus was moving them from a place of perplexity, of absolute bewilderment, to a place of peace. How many people want peace in our world? After the chase, when the six o'clock news comes off, we click off on the remote. (laughs) Watching the news is a challenge. We are living in an ever-increasing, imploding, falling apart, broken world. And people are hoping someone will redeem it. Just like they did. But everybody's looking to external redemption. A new government. A new president. Hoping that someone will externally redeem the world. The gospel is God redeems the world one heart, one life at a time. And transforms us from the inside out so that we then can help transform our world. My father and I had an interesting conversation after my conversion because he found out I got baptised, so he gave me the hiding of my life, dragged me by the air, threw me out the door, disowned me for several months. And then we got into a conversation afterwards, and by the way, we ended up very close before he died, very close. I miss him to this day. And I said to him, Dad, what would you rather have? A son who used to get by his mates literally thrown over the fence of our front yard, paralytic, always in trouble, or this? He had no argument. I said, Dad, I am now an asset to society instead of a liability because who you call Isa who I call Jesus, has changed me from the inside. So I said, pick which son you'd rather have. But you have no choice because I ain't going back. I ain't going back to that. He acknowledged later that his children who had all found Christ ultimately, their lives, he said, were very different from his Muslim friends. It's the life you live for Christ more than the words you say that will have the impact. They were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. He said to them, why are you troubled? Why did doubts rise in your minds? 
Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see a ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still did not believe it because of joy and amazement, he asked them, do you have anything to eat? They gave him some fish. He ate it in their presence. The significance of that is that Jesus was proving to them that he had been bodily raised from the dead. This was no spirit, no apparition. This was a physical, bodily resurrection from the dead and saying to us, this resurrection that I am now demonstrating to you one day is going to be yours. I resigned my gym membership because I'm getting a resurrection body. (laughs) Jesus is giving us hope. It answered the question for me that there is life beyond death and the casket. And it's not an airy-fairy spiritual thing. It is a physical resurrection to a heavenly body that can defy space and time. And that lives forever. You are still you. This concept that some people have that we all merge into almost unrecognizable angelic kind of beings is not found in here. I will be me. I hope a little bit more here. Jesus is saying, I am bodily risen. And this is another whole message, but one of the things that's touched me deeply is if you study the post-resurrection appearances of Jesus like these ones, it's astounding that no one recognizes him to begin with. The humility of God is just unfathomable. People mistook him for a gardener. They didn't know who he was. And when he finally would reveal himself to his followers, how did he do that? Look at my what? Scars. The wounds of Christ became his point of identification after the resurrection. As someone who has experienced my own brokenness with health, mental health challenges at times, I have taken great comfort in the fact that the wounds and the scars of our lives can become a point of identification with people to communicate Christ. People out there are not looking for religious perfection from us. That's absolutely abhorrent. It's repulsive. They're looking for authenticity. That says, I too am a broken, scarred person, but my life has been changed by Jesus Christ. This is the whole point as we close that Jesus wants to bring them to. He says to these same guys, he said to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me and the law and the prophets and the Psalms. Then he opened up their minds so they could understand the scriptures. This is what is written, the Christ will suffer and rise from the dead and then repentance and forgiveness of sin will be preached. When addressing the religious leaders in John chapter 5, around 
verse 38, 39, Jesus talks about the fact, he said, you search the scriptures thinking in them you will find eternal life. You fail to realize that the scriptures point to me and you fail to come to me to have life. What Jesus is doing in moving these people from perplexity to peace to hope is he's helping them connect the dots throughout the scriptures that the scriptures already told you these things would happen and they are all about pointing to me. When I heard that message 45 years ago tonight, the reality was I connected the dots. My girlfriend was different. Her family were different. The people she associated were different. Not because they went to church. Because as a pastor, I've seen many people come to church and not necessarily be different. What I realized was they had a personal living relationship with this person, Jesus Christ, that they kept talking about. And I realized, like Jesus says, it points all to me. Easter, and this is going to upset some of you, is not about an empty tomb. It's about the man who was in the tomb. See, the empty tomb did not convince the disciples, did it? They walked away still puzzled and perplexed. The foundation and surety of our hope and faith is not that there's a tomb empty somewhere in Israel, it's that their man Christ Jesus is out of it. I mean that out of the tomb, not out of it. He is risen. And the assurance we have is not based on an historical empty tomb. It's based, as Jesus did for these disciples, he connected the dots. It's based on the word of God. It's based on the truth. A German dude by the name of Helmut Telecker, who I like, said, the fact of Easter will never convince us of the, if the man does not. The empty tomb will not force us to believe, and no account of the resurrection will do it. Only this resurrected figure himself can. It's all about Jesus. It's all about him. Let's stand together. The team are going to minister again and worship. And if you are here this morning and you would like someone to pray with you because you are bewildered or perplexed, lost hope, or you're here and you would like prayer for, for healing on this Resurrection Sunday, then you can gather over here by the cross and I'm assuming there are people who can come and pray for you. <laughs> but just feel free during this moment to come. If you are someone who is here who does not have a personal relationship with this person we've been talking about this morning, Jesus Christ, and you want to just start a conversation about that, Come on up. I'd love to have a coffee with you.
I'd love to hear your story, your journey, your questions. Just like Jesus did with his followers and go from there. You see, you don't have to understand it all at once. Being a Christ follower is a lifetime progression of connecting the dots, polishing the prophecies, and allowing him to open up our hearts and minds to understand. But no matter who you are, where you're at, Christ can transform you from the inside out so that you are never the same. I would like to close by just reading a prayer and benediction over you. Crucified one, risen one, you have chosen us and we have chosen you. May this way of choosing become a way of knowing, of loving and living that knows no end. Father, take us now. Put our feet on the road that leads to the horizons of your unfolding future you have for us, the future to which your Holy Spirit draws us and for which the crucified and risen one comes to meet us. Jesus, I thank you like you did for those on the Emmaus Road, those locked away in a room. You, the crucified risen one, are so gracious that you come to meet us on the road that we're on. I pray that you will meet with every person here. Help them connect the dots. Help them to know your amazing grace that we celebrate this weekend. In Jesus' name, amen.